with me for a little trip back in time tonight, to 1976. Gerald Ford was the president of the United States, but he hadn't actually been elected. He first got the job of vice president when then-Republican Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned in scandal. My colleague Rachel Maddow has an excellent book and podcast about that. And if you haven't heard it uh, and read it, you want to because you'll learn more about it. Then President Richard Nixon also resigned in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Gerald Ford got another promotion, this time to be the actual president of the United States, having not run for vice president or president. So in 1976, the Democrats thought they had a good chance of winning that presidential election because they were running against an incumbent president who had never actually run on a nationwide ticket, which is why a bunch of Democratic candidates jumped into that primary race. But ultimately, only one prevailed. A former peanut farmer turned Georgia governor, Jimmy Carter. Carter was nowhere close to being the favorite at the beginning of the race, but his luck changed when he secured the most votes in the crucial first in the nation contest in Iowa, which then vaulted him to a win in New Hampshire. Wearing his usual broad smile, Carter said he's tremendously encouraged by the Iowa result. It's just a first out of 50. When Carter first visited Iowa one year ago, few people had even heard of him, much less thought about supporting him for president. But he quickly recruited people who were active in the Democratic Party and put together an organization, mostly of volunteers, that no other candidate was able to match. The fact that Carter is from the South was, in the minds of many Iowans, a handicap that had to be overcome. But his small town and farm background was a big help in this largely agricultural state. made his victory statement in a hotel ballroom shortly before midnight. Jimmy Carter won a very big victory. NBC election analysts say that Carter dominated the blue-collar vote, the labor vote. He ran well among almost every voter category, conservatives, Catholics, among people who think the next president should not come from Washington. The Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries were what propelled Jimmy Carter to victory. But even back then, Iowa hadn't always been a thing. In fact, it was only the second time that Iowa was given the distinction of being the very first contest. But that quirk of the calendar, that special order in which the states held their nominating contests for presidential candidates would go on to become a tradition in American politics for almost half a century. In every contest since then, Iowa has been the first caucus. New Hampshire has been the first primary. But the primacy of those two states has not gone unchallenged. In fact, back in 2008, when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton competed for the Democratic nomination, Michigan and Florida attempted something of a primary calendar coup. Legislatures in those two states did not think that Iowa and New Hampshire should always get the first bite at the apple. So they moved their presidential contests all the way up to January so that they could be the first. But that move by those two states set off a whole chain reaction. The National Democratic Party tried to punish Florida and Michigan, stripping them of the delegates who would represent them at the Democratic National Convention. In a show of solidarity with the National Democratic Party, several of the Democratic candidates, including then-Illinois Senator Barack Obama, actually had their names removed from the ballot in Michigan. 
In the end, Florida and Michigan still didn't get to go first because Iowa and New Hampshire ended up moving their nominating contests up even earlier so they could still claim that first-in-the-nation mantle that they so prized. That was how Iowa and New Hampshire stayed at the front of the pack for so long and why, as Chris and I were talking about, you have to be there in early winter. It wasn't like someone just set the calendar that way and then they neglected to change it. There was a concerted effort by party officials, by presidential candidates, and by state legislatures to keep the primary calendar the way it was and to punish anyone who dared try and change it. Which is why it's a big deal that the president of the United States, the leader of the Democratic Party, has officially come out and said that it's time to change the way Democrats choose presidential candidates. Specifically, Joe Biden says it's time to strip Iowa and New Hampshire of their first-in-the-nation status and begin the nominating process instead in South Carolina. Now, the decision to make that switch did not come out of nowhere. For the past few elections, Democrats and activists inside the party have been arguing that the calendar needed to change in order to reflect changes in the party and the country itself. Both Iowa and New Hampshire have overwhelmingly white populations that don't reflect the rest of the country, let alone the Democratic Party. And in the case of the Iowa caucuses, there's also been a lot of frustration with the fact that I was just kind of terrible at holding caucuses. You might remember back in 2016 when the race between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders was so close and Iowa's complicated delegate system was so opaque and confusing that the election officials ended up awarding delegates to the candidates based on coin tosses. Or in 2020, when a new system for tabulating the results caused major delays and the winner of that first in the nation contest was not determined until weeks after other states had already held their primaries. Members of the Democratic Party have been understandably frustrated by the way these two unrepresentative states have been able to set the tone for the entire party's presidential contest. But now Joe Biden is saying that needs to change, and the party actually agrees with him. The president proposed this new primary plan last night, adding that the order should be reevaluated every four years. But already, the Democratic National Committee has taken the first key step toward endorsing the plan. Today, the Democratic Party's Rules and Bylaws Committee voted to recommend the president's proposed changes for the 2024 election over the objections of leaders in Iowa and New Hampshire. Under President Biden's proposal, states like South Carolina, Georgia and Michigan, all of which have large African-American populations, would move up the calendar to reflect the influence that those constituencies have within the Democratic Party. That kind of push for more representation has been at the heart of Joe Biden's agenda since he took office. Keep in mind, this is the president who has nominated the most diverse slate of federal judges that this country has ever seen. He's the president who's appointed the first ever African-American woman to the Supreme Court. Just this week, the Democratic Party chose an African-American congressman to lead the party in the House for the first time in U.S. history. These sorts of changes and their impact on how decisions get made and by whom those decisions get made is huge. Michael Scherer is a noted political reporter for The Washington Post who covers campaigns, Congress and the White House. He's also one of the reporters who broke the story yesterday on President Biden shocking many people in his own party by calling for this complete remaking of the early nominating calendars. Michael, it's great to see you. Congratulations on on breaking the story. I guess my first question, journalist to journalist, is why is this? Why was this a breaking story? Why was this something that was done unexpectedly and and as a surprise? This is something people have thought about, as we've been talking about for years. Yeah, n- not just thought about, but just this year, there have been three public hearings uh, 
there were 20 states, uh, if you include Puerto Rico, so 19 states plus Puerto Rico, who applied uh, and gave presentations about why they should go first. There was extensive discussion. And if you went to the betting lines talking to members of the Rules and Bylaws Committee uh, before yesterday, nobody would have had what ended up happening on their bingo card. It, it ultimately came down to the president of the United States. Everybody on that committee is there because the president put them there. They're all loyal to him. And, and like you said, only two dissented from his uh, his wishes here. And and it turned out that President Biden wanted to send a message with this. And, and I think this is a big message. Now, right now, he doesn't really have a primary challenge. He says he's running. If that's true, practically, this doesn't matter much uh, this cycle because he's not going to have contested primaries in any of these states, uh, at least as far as we can see right now. But he has sort of broken the seal on tradition and he's made clear the the Democratic Party that he wants to leave behind, and, and then he wants it to be identif- to identify, uh, you know, w- with his presidency. He's also made clear that he has a message for people in several of these key swing states that will decide who the next president is. He's going to the people of Georgia and saying whether Republicans change the state or not. I want you to be more important. I want you to go early in this process. Uh, and and again, I think that's a messaging play. Uh, by the president of the United States as he as he prepares for re-election. So you make an interesting point that he doesn't uh, currently have uh, a named challenger or somebody who'll challenge him for the next election. But if he did, would this be more relevant? Because South Carolina was the state in sure. which Joe Biden's uh, quest for the presidency was cemented. In fact, South Carolina uh, officials went out of their way tonight to say we were not part of this decision. This was not uh, we didn't lobby for this. Unquestionably, this makes it harder to challenge Joe Biden. If, if another Democrat comes forward in the next few months and says he's he's not the guy for the job next time, I'm going to mount a serious campaign. Uh, the biggest weaknesses he had in, in 2020 when he was running were Iowa and New Hampshire. And it looks like those two states right now uh, will probably not be able to award any delegates. And it'll probably be very difficult for candidates to campaign there because New Hampshire says it's not going to follow these rules. And Iowa is now out of the out of the early state list. And, and, and like you said, he's starting with the state that made him the nominee in 2020, South Carolina. So it, it's clearly an insurance policy against a, a serious primary challenge as well. You just, you just said New Hampshire says they're not going to follow this. What does that mean? New Hampshire is going to have its own primary when it feels like it? Uh, yes. So, so the, you know, the, the, the history of this is that the states have struck a truce with the parties. And now that truce is broken, at least on the Democratic side. And uh, New Hampshire's threat has always been that we will always go first as the first primary in the nation. They, they gave dispensation to Iowa because it was a caucus. It's in their state law. They have a Republican governor. They have two Democratic senators. All three of those right now are saying there is no way we are following what the Democratic Party is going to do. There's no one really saying that that's going to change. So almost certainly, what is going to happen is New Hampshire will continue to be the first major primary uh, that is run in the United States. Republicans will compete there. And Democrats, if they do compete there, will face serious sanction from the Democratic Party. Because uh, you know another thing that's happened here is the Democratic Party has passed rules that will make it much more painful than it was in 2008 when Michigan and, and uh, uh, Florida tried to step out of line. Not only does it take away delegates from the nominated convention in these states that that disobey the party rules. It will also sanction the candidates who campaign in these states directly. Huh. And that means even if they put their name in the ballot. So if, if I want to challenge Joe Biden, for example, 
I put my, I put uh, uh, my name on, on, on the ballot in New Hampshire. The Democratic Party can keep me from going on debate stages. They can take away my data and they wow. guarantee that none of the none of the uh, uh, delegates I win in New Hampshire will count towards anything at the nominating convention. So they've, they've definitely toughened the rules uh, from last time. And, and so I think it's also very likely we don't know this yet because Iowa Democrats haven't said that Iowa also stays first. Again, Republicans are going to go first in Iowa, as is tradition. Democrats can simply tie themselves to the Republicans. They will have what is what amounts to a straw poll. They you know, won't award delegates, but, you know, probably will get some coverage if a certain candidate wins. Um, and and uh, and so you'll have the first two contests Democrats won't be playing in. And then we'll go to South Carolina, where delegates will start being awarded, then to Nevada, then to Georgia and then to Michigan. Which means, as Chris and I were discussing earlier, we journalists may end up in Iowa and New Hampshire um, in early January of uh, 2024. Thanks, Michael. You ruined my two years of planning. If you're covering Republicans, you're going to be there. That's right. right. All right. Uh, I was not planning on having this conversation with you tonight. So it was an interesting story, an interesting scoop and an interesting set of developments. Thanks for your reporting. Washington Post national political reporter Michael Scherer. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. All right. In coming up uh, in the five weeks since Elon Musk took over Twitter, thousands of accounts previously banned from the social media site have been restored. And with them, a barrage of hate speech and misinformation. I'll talk to NBC's uh, Brandy Zadrozny, who covers online extremism and disinformation about that later in the hour. But first, brand new developments today in two sprawling Department of Justice probes into Donald Trump are indictments in the near future. Former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid standing by. She joins me next to discuss. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. All right. When it comes to Donald Trump and the Justice Department's two sprawling investigations into him, there's really no such thing as a quiet day. Today, Eagle Eye NBC News reporter spotted the former Trump White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and his former deputy, Pat Philbin, entering a federal courthouse in D.C., where the Justice Department's grand jury that is investigating the January 6th attack and Trump's efforts to overturn the election is seated. Reporters also spotted DOJ prosecutors who are assigned to that investigation entering the same courthouse this morning. NBC reporters even saw those men take the elevator to the floor where the grand jury meets. So it's probably safe to say they weren't there for a coffee break. But it's worth noting here that Cipollone especially is a huge get for the government's investigation because he was repeatedly in the room where it happened. 
Today's reported grand jury testimony comes a day after a very uh, eventful day regarding the government's other criminal trial into Donald Trump. That investigation being, of course, the investigation into Trump's handling of thousands of government records that just so happened to end up at his Mar-a-Lago beach club. The New York Times reported yesterday that the former Trump social media manager, Dan Scavino, and two other Trump White House aides testified to the Mar-a-Lago documents grand jury. That apparent testimony came on the same day that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals threw out the special master who was overseeing the roughly 13,000 records that were retrieved from Trump's home. There are lingering questions regarding the potential for remaining government documents at Trump's other homes. Not only has the government raised the prospect that they are concerned some White House documents remain missing, we've got several reports that the DOJ believes documents could be at Trump's Bedminster, New Jersey estate and at Trump Tower in New York City. So the question now is, what is next? What does the Justice Department do next? Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid, former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barbara, good evening. Good to see you. We have not seen an appeal from Donald Trump to the 11th Circuit Court uh, ruling about the special master. Tell us what that means tonight. Well, I think he will. He, the, the fact that he hasn't yet, I think, just means that he is, uh, you know, assessing his options. But stalling has always been his game, stalling any of these things in order to his advantage. So I imagine he will first to the full 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And then if they refuse to take that up or uh, change the opinion, then to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I imagine that's coming, even if we haven't seen it yet. All right. If you're Jack Smith, uh, what does this mean to you? Does it mean anything? <clears throat> Well, I think the 11th Circuit decision was very important. I think it's uh, very likely that that will stand and he will get those classified, those non-classified documents. You know, a while back, the 11th Circuit ruled just with regard to the smaller subset of classified documents that the Justice Department could get them. Now this is everything. No special master necessary. The Justice Department gets to look at all of these. And I think it's a really important step to being able to move forward because you need to look at the documents to determine whether any of these defenses Donald Trump has put up have any validity whatsoever, which documents you might want to use for any sort of a criminal case. So someone will have to review all of those 13,000 documents, but now they can get to it. They can get on that. It was an important step in advancing this case. And so I think it's a a, a really important victory for moving the case forward. All right. So they can get on those documents that they have, but the Justice Department keeps raising the prospect in court filings that they think there are other documents. Now, if that's true, I'm I'm curious about telegraphing the fact that they know that's true, that there may be documents at at, uh, Trump Tower in New York or in Bedminster, New Jersey, because wouldn't somebody move them in that case? What, what, What do you think happens to the fact that there may be other documents? Yeah, so there, you know, two goals in this case, Ellie. One is certainly a criminal prosecution for uh, any violations of the law. But the other is they just want these documents back. It's really bad for our national security to have secret documents floating around out there. Uh, top secret documents are defined as documents, the disclosure of which would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. So the idea that they're in the basement at Mar-a-Lago or, you know, some room at Bedminster or, uh, you know, some uh, boxes at Trump Tower is really dangerous. But they can't just go in on their own and look. They have to be able to develop probable cause Mm. to convince a judge that they can go in and get a warrant to do that. So how do you develop that? You do it by talking to people. One of these aides you just mentioned who was in the grand jury yesterday handled Donald Trump's travel. 
And so that strikes me as someone who could be very interesting. You know, there are reports that Donald Trump loved to travel with boxes of documents and he would pile them up and spend time on his flight paging through what was in there. And so if these documents were brought either from the White House to Bedminster or Trump Tower or from Mar-a-Lago to those locations, then perhaps this person has information about that. And so if you can gather that kind of information and put it in an affidavit, you might be able to amass probable cause to get that search warrant and then be able to send agents in to see if there are documents there. So here's a question for you. You know, we, we talk to, we interview you smart lawyers all the time to the extent that we think that we understand the legal system. But you just said something that reminded me that uh, this is why we're, you know, guys like me who aren't lawyers uh, shouldn't guess. Wouldn't you as a prosecutor, if you found these documents that, that you believed to be at Mar-a-Lago uh, after Donald Trump had said many times that they, they didn't have them, is that not probable cause to search other homes? It really isn't, Ellie. You have to have probable cause to believe, number one, that evidence will be found and that it will be found at a particular location. This goes back to language in the Fourth Amendment that talks about describing uh, property to be seized with particularity. So no doubt it's a hunch. You know, feels like a pretty good guess, pretty strong speculation, but you need a little more than that. Not much more, but you would need a witness to say either I saw the documents at this huh. location or I helped him transport the documents to that location. It doesn't need to be much, but enough to believe that, you know, reasonable grounds to believe that documents were located there, uh, not just speculation. This is why we leave the lawyering to experts like you, Barbara. Great to see you as always. Thank you, my friend. Barbara McQuaid is the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We appreciate your time tonight. All right, we've got much more ahead. Tonight, we're going to take a look at how the return of far-right voices to Twitter is not only emboldening hate speech on the platform, but it's actually hurting important social and political movements. But first, a fascinating look at the bravery and resiliency in Ukraine. As ordinary citizens cope with darkness and freezing temperatures, a result of Russia's ruthless airstrikes on that country's power grid. Stick around. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. This was the lead story in Ukraine's Kyiv Post this afternoon. Quote, this is what happens when your child's having surgery during a missile attack in Kyiv. This young man in the orange is David. He's 14 years old. He was undergoing a complicated six-hour-long heart operation when Russian missiles rained down on Ukraine's capital city last week. When I first started reading the story, I assumed it would be about the moral dilemma of the doctors deciding whether to get to a bomb shelter or stay above ground and operate. You could just 
can't pause heart surgery. So that decision would be deciding whether doctors would risk their own lives or that of the patient. But this story isn't about that. That kind of bravery is so assumed in Ukraine right now, the Kyiv Post doesn't even mention it. The doctor's concern was not moral. It was entirely logistical. Here's a video posted by the head of the hospital moments after the missile attack last week. Suddenly, all surgeries had to be performed by flashlight. At that moment, the hospital was treating 190 patients. No running water, no heat, and the only power they had was the auxiliary power to get their equipment working. Incredibly, the hospital staff made do with what they had. They kept working. Fortunately, David survived. Unfortunately, his case isn't unique. Russian airstrikes have been systematically targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure since early October. Ukrainian officials have been working around the clock to get heat and power and water back online. But like a game of whack-a-mole, Russia just keeps blowing it all up. At some points last week, 10 million Ukrainians were without power. That's nearly a quarter of the country's pre-war population. As of last night, 6 million Ukrainians are without power. Huge swaths of the country are consistently without running water and without heat. The weather is already below freezing in Ukraine right now. 26 degrees Fahrenheit in Kyiv today. It's likely to get colder and colder for months. Ukraine's officials are under no illusion that they're going to be able to overcome Russia's consistent barrage and to restore heat and power and water before winter's end. Yesterday, the mayor of Kyiv went so far as to suggest that his residents should consider a temporary evacuation of the capital city. Russia's trying to destroy the willpower of the Ukrainian people. In the more than nine months of this war, Russia has not been able to destroy the willpower of the Ukrainian people. But now they're using energy and water and heat as weapons against civilians. And I don't use the word weapon lightly, given the normalcy of pregnancy, surgery, dialysis, given how hard it is to live through a Ukrainian winter without heat. These attacks on civilian energy infrastructure have the power to kill. Attacks like these on en energy infrastructure that is nowhere near the front line of the war. These are not acts of war. They are war crimes. We'll be right back. Almost two years ago, he decided to post this on Twitter, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. End quote. Here's what happened after that tweet from at real Donald Trump on December 19th. Kelly O'Brien wrote on Facebook, quote, calling all patriots be in Washington, D.C. January 6th. This wasn't organized by any group. DJT, Donald J. Trump, has invited us and it's going to be wild. Also on Facebook, December 22nd, 2020, Florida Oath Keepers leader Kelly Meggs wrote this, quote, Trump said it's going to be wild. It's going to be wild. Lots of exclamation marks. He wants us to make it wild. That's what he's saying. He called us all to the Capitol. He wants us to make it wild. Sir, yes, sir. Gentlemen, we are heading to D.C. Pack your stuff. Lots. Uh, by the way, he didn't write stuff. Uh, January 6, 2021. We now know what happened. A mob of people arrived at the Capitol, some of them armed in an effort to keep Donald Trump in power. O'Brien is one of more than 900 people to be charged for breaching the Capitol on January 6th. She pleaded guilty in April of this year. The Oath Keeper, Kelly Meggs, we should note, was convicted of seditious conspiracy this week for his role in the attack. It's one of the most serious things you can be charged with in America. That's what was organized on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Sedition was partly organized online. 
In January 2021, after that organized attempt to block the peaceful transfer of power, Facebook and Twitter removed tens of thousands of accounts associated with the Proud Boys and QAnon conspiracy theory from their platforms following their policies on coordinated harmful activity and civic integrity. Unable to access Twitter, many of those accounts moved to Parler, Gab, and other far-right alternative social media platforms, and ultimately Truth Social, founded by the twice-impeached insurrectionist former president himself. Well, since Elon Musk took over Twitter, many of those accounts are back, including Trump's, though he's not posting anything new. His will-be-wild tweet instigating January 6th is back on the platform for all to see. The return to Twitter also briefly included Kanye West, who's been suspended for anti-Semitic remarks before Musk warmly welcomed him back to the platform twice. For two weeks, West used his freshly reinstated account to tweet some of the most vile, hateful, and dangerous content around. But it got so bad last night that Musk himself suspended Ye's account again indefinitely. In fact, since Musk has taken the reins, he's randomly and arbitrarily replatformed a range of accounts formerly suspended for hate speech and misinformation, even making policy by Twitter poll. In late November, Musk announced, quote, general amnesty, whatever that means, for previously suspended accounts as long as they have not broken the law. Because 70 percent of the people who have not yet evacuated the platform and happened to see that tweet voted yes. So that's now the company's policy. The people have spoken, Musk actually said. NBC's Brandy Zadrozny reports that the amnesty policy has restored the accounts of hundreds of far-right activists and QAnon followers. One software developer who tracks Twitter suspensions logged an estimated 12,000 reversals of past bans, including people like Patrick Casey, a white nationalist, and Andrew, Andrew Anglin, a neo-Nazi. They've both had their, restore, their accounts restored. And this all coincides with a sharp spike in hate speech and harassment that is driving scores of users off of Twitter daily. The New York Times tracked a market uptick in slurs against black people and gay men, a 61 percent increase in anti-Semitic posts within the first two weeks of Elon Musk's takeover. The return of these far right forces to Musk's Twitter 2.0 comes at a cost. Not a financial cost, but a potentially steep human cost. Twitter, for all its faults, has been used to build and sustain social movements, to expand rights, to shine a light on injustice around the globe, from Iran to the Arab Spring to China to cities right here in this country. That platform has allowed ordinary people to share information, to build community, to collaborate for progress. What happens now that they're leaving the platform? What happens if far-right activists are able to use Twitter to organize once again? What is happening to the platform right now is not an example of Twitter actually breaking... It just might be something worse. Joining me now, in person, my old friend, Bradney Zadrozny, senior reporter for MSNBC News, who covers the Internet and social media platforms. Uh, we've not seen each other in person for a long time, but we talk all, all too regularly about this particular issue. What's happening with Twitter? Is it falling apart? Is it getting bigger? Is it getting more popular, less popular? What's happening? All of the above. Um, for different reasons, right? You know, Twitter is in a state of um, change. You know, Elon calls it Twitter 2.0, and that really is what we're seeing. Twitter is fine in terms of the lights are on, the tweets work, you know, the replies work, privacy is still on, all the things that make Twitter Twitter are fine. However, what's happened is instead of 
say, large teams that used to talk about how to moderate content and respectfully and thoughtfully um, think about who they want on the platform and who they don't want on the platform and how to um, bridge healthy conversations, which used to be their sort of goal. Now it is run by edict by a man who is driven by whims and his fancy and Twitter polls. And um, one researcher talked to me uh, and called him a chaos agent, right? He likes that chaos. He mm -hmm. views that as progress, not necessarily progress in making things better, but progress in going to the next stage. Like that is what he's interested in. And if he loses advertisers and um, users that contributed to those healthy conversations along the way, he doesn't seem to care. And with this new amnesty, undoubtedly, there is no arguing about it. Twitter is a more racist, misogynistic, unsafe place for all kinds of marginalized folks and, and people in general. So how do you square this? Everything you talked about, the loss of that human content moderation, uh, Elon Musk and others sort of referred to a censorship. Right. And, and, and some have said that it was a violation of the First Amendment, which it's not because Twitter is not a, a, a government. But they, there are a lot of people who think that's Twitter's better for not having people do all those things you said that Twitter should be doing. A lot of activists and experts say content moderation is the one thing that, that makes social media valuable. Yeah, I mean, if you say that you don't want content moderation, it's just not an honest argument. There's no way that you have a platform um, that's led by a human, that's built by humans, that doesn't have some sort of point of view. There is always going to be a person that's making these decisions. The point now is that instead of a, a large group of different people with different political views, um, like we just saw in this big Twitter files document whatever today um there is this big story about like this was inside the hunter biden laptop decision right. well what that showed was that there are a large portion of people with very different views that all worked really hard to come to a consensus about what kind of place they wanted twitter to be and unfortunately again like now we have one person making those decisions and you know if that's what you'd like that's fine. So it's and not nobody. I think that's yeah, the important part. Cool. It's not like all of a sudden the crowd is determining it. Elon Musk is content well, moderation on Twitter. Musk. Yeah. And, and not only that, when he, um, he he's loving it, right? He's yeah. loving being a content moderator. When he suspended uh, Ye, formerly Kanye West, last night, there was a DM that was leaked on Ye's Truth Social. And when he made that decision and sent um, Elon Musk sent a screenshot of the suspension to Ye, he put with it, I'm Jesus' name. He has referred to himself as God in mm. other posts, including the post that was on um, Trump's reversal. He, he, there is still a human causing these, making these decisions. It's just Elon Musk. And if you like that, then you like that. Um, but that's not going to be a place that there is going to be a wide swath of um, different kind of people that are going to want to be on. So I've lost a lot of Twitter, Twitter followers, probably about 15,000 in the last two weeks. Um, and I see all sorts of other people who've gained a lot of Twitter followers, uh, but they, they, the, the people who've gained the largest number tend to be far-right politicians. What's going on with that? Yeah. Where'd, where'd my followers go and where are they getting all theirs from? Um, that's just data, right? And you're not like making that up out of a whole cloth. There is ProPublica data that actually shows that the far right Republicans have gained more followers and Democrats have lost followers. And again, it's it, this is anecdotal, but I can tell you that the people that I talked to for my article, the people who are either non-political at all, right? This very famous researcher, app researcher, Jane Wong, who is 
Twitter celebrity. Twitter asked them, her to work there because she's always like doing these great stories about hidden features. Even she, who is not political, she said just this week, I have to go. Right. It's awful now. So who's coming on? Well, neo-Nazis, QAnon adherents. Um, far-right meme warriors, trolls. Like, these are the people that are now coming onto Twitter and the people are leaving Twitter who are the sort of more reasonable folks, maybe left-leaning folks that don't think this is for them anymore. So that might explain your sort of loss. Interesting. Uh, There's so much more to talk about. We're going to talk more on Sunday morning. So I'm going to, there's a lot more that I I and my viewers need to understand about this. Great to see you, my friend. Randy Zadrozny is a senior reporter for MSNBC who dwells in the underbelly of the internet. Uh, she covers internet and social media platforms. Uh, it's a tough job. All right, we got one more story to get to tonight. Some good news about the state of the U.S. economy. Like, actually, really good news. Stick around. This morning, President Joe Biden signed legislation enforcing a contract between labor unions and the freight rail industry. The law brings an end to several months of difficult negotiations that nearly triggered a nationwide rail strike that could have crippled the economy. An economy that in the past week has given us quite a few positive indicators that things are looking up despite months of Republican hand wringing. And while the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, admits we still have a long way to go to bring inflation down to acceptable levels, he says it makes sense to moderate the pace of those rate increases we've been seeing from the Fed. Those smaller interest rate hikes could start this month. We also learned this week that despite inflation and those higher interest rates, the economy grew at a faster rate between July and September than economists expected. That growth was driven primarily by gains in exports and American consumer spending. And that spending continued in October as households got ready for the holiday season, showing the strongest gain since June. And consumers set spending records in person on Black Friday and online throughout the holiday weekend. This is not the behavior you typically see from people who are concerned about a looming recession. We also learned today that more U.S. jobs were created last month than expected. While the unemployment rate remained unchanged at 3.7 percent, we have to remember that for decades, economists had considered 5 percent unemployment to be something called full employment, that there are always sort of 5% of people in flux. We've been below that for a long time. The average hourly wages have grown 5.1% year over year. Now, that's not as much as inflation, but it's pretty good. Republicans spent months framing inflation as unique to and caused by Biden and the Democratic Party. It's a fact that was laid waste by the fact that dozens of countries have rates of inflation higher than that of the United States, and not a single Republican stepped forward with a better solution other than the party's ubiquitous tax and spending cuts approach. The fact is that right now there are a lot of tailwinds playing out in the U.S. economy. There are things that this administration has done and continues to do which will actually address high inflation. Things like the actual Inflation Reduction Act that funds the fight against climate change and cuts the cost of prescription drugs and a chips bill that provides billions in subsidies for the U.S. semiconductor industry. These investments and other policy measures from Democrats are looking like net positives for the economy. But don't take it from me. Take it from a real economist. Joining us now is Betsy Stevenson, professor of economics at the University of Michigan. She was the chief economist for the United States Department of Labor under President Barack Obama from 2010 to 2011. Uh, Betsy, good to see you again. Thank you for being with us tonight. Let's start with the thing that that you are expert at, and that is labor economics, right? That for all the things that are out there that are problematic that we can or cannot solve, labor, jobs, Good wages have been the intractable problem of our time. And right now, I think there are 1.7 open positions for everybody looking for a job in America. Wages continue to be higher and unemployment continues to be low. 
I, we certainly have a very strong labor market right now. You know, we're seeing job growth that is month after month outpacing what we saw in the 21st century prior to the pandemic. So really strong job growth. Um, what we're starting to see right now is the job growth is concentrated in the areas where we're still recovering from the pandemic. And that's really primarily uh, hospitality and leisure and education and health services. You know, those are two sectors where they haven't fully recovered from the pandemic. They've been slow to recover. We're seeing really strong job growth. But across the board, in most sectors on this report, we saw jobs being added. Let's talk about recessions, because we, we never predict them well. And the idea that the, the economy is doing better than a whole lot of people thought it was doesn't mean we're not going to have a recession. We could actually have a recession. Many people still predict there may be one next year. I guess the one silver lining is that for all this horribleness of interest rate uh, hikes, the Fed will have interest rates to take down if we have a recession. Well, maybe. I mean, what the Fed has got to do is bring price, you know, got to bring the rate of inflation down. And what they have said is, you know, they have to prioritize breaking the back of inflation because we don't want it to become entrenched. We don't want to change people's expectations in a way that will make it even harder to fight inflation. And what I, I think that means is we'd really like to see them be able to do that without there being, you know, a, a significant recession. They have said, look, if it looks like we've gone too far, if, you know, if the rate of inflation is clearly coming down and we see, you know, job growth has, is shrinking, is negative, we're in a recession, we can reverse course quickly. But I think the right thing to expect is the Fed is going to raise rates and hold them high for some time to bring inflation down. You know, the best path of inflation coming down still has it coming down slowly over the next two or three years to get to that 2% target. So, so I wouldn't anticipate rates coming down anytime soon. Right. I guess this is my question, that they have to solve this problem of inflation before any kind of recession sets, sets in, because you can't have that problem, right? You can't have high inflation, rising interest rates, and a recession at the same time. That's, that's possibly the worst formula. That is, I mean, what's really been helping us out here is we can go back to the government spending that happened during the pandemic yep. that some people have blamed for the inflation in the first place. Well, that government spending helped people eat and keep a roof over their head during the pandemic. And what it's doing right now is it's helping people uh, continue to spend even in the face of rising prices. Now, the Fed wants people to stop spending, mm -hmm. but the good news is, is it's not, people have, a, have strong enough ba bank accounts that people are able to spend to buy food, even though the price of food is up, to pay their rent, even though the price of housing is up. And so I think we're minimizing some of the hardship yeah. of inflation because people are able to dip into savings. And that is also meaning that even though they're raising rates and the economy is clearly starting yep. to slow, I still think it's more likely than not that we don't have a recession in the next six months. Betsy Stevenson, good to see you. Thank you for joining us this evening. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of economics at the University of Michigan. And that does it for us tonight. I'll see you tomorrow on Velshi at 8 a.m. Tomorrow I've got a special return guest for the Velshi Band Book Club. The author of The Prescient, Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood, joins me to discuss her book, Hag Seed, which is a modern adaptation of Shakespeare's Tempest, which is an oft-banned play.